This text is written to a man named Donatus, who was an elder in the church in Carthage. I'll say a little bit about the town of Carthage, um, although I have said already a little bit with Tertullian, uh, but I'll reiterate that, and then we'll look at uh, Cyprian. But I want to begin with talking about uh, conversion. So probably the most famous uh, conversion account in the uh, early church is Augustine. Um, Augustine's lengthy book, which we call the Confessions, um, which uh, is probably a misnomer of the title, our translation. The Latin is confessionis, identical, spelt identical, except for when you get to the end there, N, uh, so the NS, as in our English confessions, it has N-E-S. And the Latin word confessioni or confessio, which is the verb it comes from, can mean uh, confess sin. And uh, Augustine does confess sin in his uh, confessions. He particularly talks in one chapter about a childhood sin where he uh, and some friends around the age of 14 uh, decided to steal some pears. Um, not because they were hungry, not because the pears were beautiful, but just because they took delight in the act of stealing. Because as soon as they had gotten the pears, they threw them away. And for Augustine, it typified the human problem, the human predicament, our delight in sin for sin's sake. Um, but uh, the word confessio also means confess the faith. We use the word in both senses. And certainly Augustine in his uh, confessions confesses the faith. Uh, but there's another uh, use of the word which we don't capture in our word, and that is the word praise. And uh, I think there's a strong argument that that was the central idea for Augustine. Uh, he would have known of the other associations. When we use words, this is where we get puns, right, and double entendre. Uh, we use words with double meanings. We recognize, ah, yeah, that could mean this, uh, etc. Um, and I think he would have known that this meant confession of faith, confession of sin. But I think the central meaning for him was praise. So as he looked at his conversion, what he was filled with was a deep sense of gratitude. Um, living as a human being in this world uh, is not easy for any of us. That's the reality, right? It's difficult. Uh, there's difficult things that come across our pathway, etc. And for the Christian, uh, we're not spared some of those things, right? Uh, we wrestle with physical diseases. We wrestle with mental breakdowns. Uh, we wrestle with any, any number of issues that people in the world wrestle with. But we have something that those who do not know Christ uh, uh, don't have. But that is we recognize that our, our life is a gift from God. And we have uh, a faith in him. And it should fill us with gratitude. And uh, I'm sure there's days sometimes when it's difficult for you to get out of bed. right? And uh, the reason why we as Christians can get out of bed so to speak, is because we have a God who is sovereign, who loves us, has given his son for us, and has saved us, and has brought us into fellowship with himself. And Augustine, I, I, I think that's the central theme running through his book on, on, on his conversion. Um, and conversion should fill us with gratitude. It should be something that we wake up, and I know it's not always this way, we should wake up every day and just be amazed that God has saved us that he's brought us into a living relationship with himself, that his Holy Spirit, God himself, lives within us, that the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins. And it should fill us with amazement, a wonder, gratitude. 
And uh, Augustine's not the first story of, of conversion in the ancient church. Um, we'll see Cyprian has a small one, which I think, again, speaks of gratitude and wonder and amazement. Um, Augustine's the most well-known. It's huge. It's a book. Uh, but there are others before him. And in fact, in some ways, Augustine is building off of the conversion story of the Apostle Paul. Uh, if you read through the book of Acts, what is striking is that Paul's conversion story in chapter 9 is repeated in chapter 22, but longer. And then it's repeated again in chapter 26, and even longer again. And each time we learn other little bits about the conversion story. And I think that's telling us at least two things. Number one, uh, it's telling us how important Paul is to the apostolic mission of the early church. So much so that you have to be reminded, this is, this is a man who was this, a man who believed that violence served the cause of God, the man who, who believed that killing other human beings actually pleased God, and he's transformed from a man of violence, a religious violence, into a man of love. And that's, if, you don't, if you don't understand that about Paul, you, you haven't grasped the gospel. And uh, not only is Paul very vital, but the whole, the whole notion of conversion is vital. And uh, notice what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying uh, that it is vital you have some sort of adult conversion experience uh, that you can remember in detail. It is, what is vital is conversion. Whether it take place like Paul on the road to Damascus or Augustine in a, in a garden in Milan, or it takes place when you're three or four years old. Uh, none of us are born children of God. And uh, some of us still remember those uh, songs sung by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Uh, I think it's Woodstock, their song Woodstock, uh, about uh, uh, where we're stardust, we're children of God. And I'm... You know, the, the utopianism of the 60s uh, failed to grapple with the realities of human fallenness and human sin and the realities of human life uh, outside of God, uh, etc. And uh, we're not born in a relationship, a saved, saving relationship with God. We need to be born again. That's vital. Um, at what point that takes place? Well, that's another, another story. So tonight we're going to look at a conversion story of Cyprian. Um, he's a Carthaginian. Uh, he's a Roman. Uh, Carthage had been founded as a colony by the Phoenicians and probably the city of Tyre, which is uh, roughly where Lebanon is now, uh, along the coast there. Around the 6700s, the city of Tyre planted a few colonies um, in the western Mediterranean. It's obviously in the eastern Mediterranean. And the most famous of them is Carthage. Carthage, within a very short time of its being planted as a colony around 600 BC, was around 30,000 people. And from there, it went on to build uh, an empire in the Western Mediterranean, um, occupying Sicily, uh, Sardinia, uh, portions of North Africa, and then what we call the, today the French Riviera, and portions of Spain, also on the, north, uh, the uh, northern shore or the northern part of the Mediterranean. Inevitably, they were going to run into another people, namely the Romans. And by the two early 200s, the Romans have conquered all of the Italian peninsula, uh, at least 
up to uh, really where Milan and so on is, and then down into the boot of Italy, and they're, they're going to encounter the Carthaginians. And the two peoples are very, very, very different. The Carthaginians are a mix of uh, Semitic people, Phoenicians, uh, who are akin to the Jews in some way. They're Semitic. Uh, their language is Semitic. Uh, and they've had a mixture of, uh, of them with the North Africans who are Berber. And the Romans obviously are Indo-European. Language is very different. Worldview is very different in many ways. And not surprisingly, uh, they come to blows. And, um, and the desire, the Roman desire, and it's not clear, it's never, it's, it's not clear to the Romans even 150, 200 years later about why they ended up with an empire. They just kind of acquired it, you know. Oh, there's another piece of land there. We'll, we'll, we'll take that one too. And uh, they find themselves in three long wars with the Carthaginians. Uh, probably the most famous Carthaginian that you, I'm sure you know his name, if you know nothing about him, is Hannibal, who performed an incredible feat of taking an army with elephants across the Alps, coming down in northern Italy, surprising the Romans. Um, but he didn't have any siege equipment, so he couldn't besiege Rome. And after 10 years of campaigning in the Italian peninsula, had to go home to North Africa, where he was defeated by a Roman army uh, in the year 202 BC. And that should have ended the the wars, but the Romans were just determined to destroy Carthage. And they used a pretext in the mid-100s, around the year 150, 146 BC to be exact, and uh, leveled the city, just destroyed it. And then about 100 years later, uh, Julius Caesar decided, I think I'll rebuild it. And they rebuilt the city. And so the city that Carthage, that, that uh, Cyprian knew, was a Roman city. But it was a multicultural city. All these ancient cities are deeply multicultural cities. They're cities with a multitude of ethnicities, a multitude of languages. And it's, by the way, it's in the cities. Uh, if you look at the, the earliest settlements of Christianity, they are always in the largest cities uh, on the coast, on the Mediterranean. Rome, Athens, Ephesus, um, Alexandria, um, Caesarea, Carthage. There are a very few exceptions to that. And because the cities were open to new ideas, they're uh, places where all kinds of people gather together, and people are forced to grapple with uh, fresh ideas, fresh concepts, etc. And it's in the cities that Christianity takes root. Christianity, is in, in the early years, is an urban religion. So, and you, In fact, you see this with Paul in his ministry, and this carries through all the way through the period we're looking at. If Paul were to, so let's say Canada, no, no gospel churches, and Paul comes to Canada to plant the church. First place he'd head for is, no offense to anybody if your city doesn't get mentioned, is I suspect Halifax. Like Halifax, we, we landed at Halifax when we came to Canada. That's the doorway into Canada. Um, and then Montreal, yeah, big, yeah, definitely Montreal. Then Toronto. Uh, I don't think anything else in Ontario would be hit. Maybe Hamilton. <laughs> um, definitely not Dundas. <laughs> then, oh, I don't think Winnipeg. Maybe Winnipeg. But Calgary, maybe Edmonton and Vancouver. All those cities have, by the way, all big airports, international airports. And uh, Paul 
Paul's ministry, you can see, goes, he normally goes to cities right on the Mediterranean and plants a church there and expects the church then to evangelize the surrounding countryside. Um, this is so, the, the, the fact that Christianity is an urban religion is actually found in our word pagan. So the word paganus becomes the word for an unbeliever in the Roman world. Paganus also means country dweller, somebody who lives in the countryside. So it tells you, I think, this doesn't always work, by the way, but it tells you that the gospel, the, 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 the last people it reached were the people in the countryside, in the, the small villages and towns. And Cyprian then grows up in Roman Carthage. By, by Cyprian's day, the city, the Roman city has been now is about 250 years old, multicultural, about 750,000 people. Um, it's the second largest city in the Western Mediterranean. The largest is Rome, over a million. Um, how many Christians in his day? 15, 20,000 maybe? House churches? Um, he's the bishop of all of them, as we will see eventually, which means he has spiritual authority and oversight over those churches. Um, please don't think of a bishop in his day as the bishop in the medieval period, or even a bishop today. Uh, he's elected by the congregations, uh, although they, they have developed this hierarchicalism of bishop, elders, deacons. The bishop is still elected by the congregations. Uh, bishops in the Middle Ages elect bishops, and that is not the way in the early church. The congregations still vote uh, for, uh, for bishops, and so he will be voted in by congregations. Um, uh, last day, we looked at Tertullian. Tertullian is an early Christian author, the first Christian, really, theologian to write in Latin. And uh, Cyprian uh, follows after him. Um, they probably never knew each other. Cyprian was born around the year 200. Tertullian would probably be about 40 at the time. Uh, Cyprian is not born into a Christian home. He's born into a very, very wealthy, aristocratic home. Um, there is a life of Cyprian that's written shortly after his death. He dies in 258, and uh, next day we'll talk about his death. He dies as a martyr, and there's one very significant little event that takes place at his death, which I'll relate, and I'll probably begin with that next day, because it says a lot about Cyprian, but you'll have to wait till next week. Um, he's born around the year 200. He's converted in his 40s. So he's about 42, 43, 44 when he's converted somewhere around 242, 243. Um, shortly after his death, he dies as a martyr in 258. Um, one of the deacons in the church, whose name is Pontius, like Pontius Pilate, but obviously not the same individual, uh, writes his life. And that, normally that'd be fabulous. We'd have a biographical background, etc. Um, but he begins the story at his conversion. He, Pontius says, now... The reality is this, that whatever a man does before he's converted is of no spiritual significance at all. So, we'll start when Cyprian became a Christian. Which, yeah, it's true, theologically, but it's frustrating as all get out. Here's a man who knew him, knew him intimately, and he tells us nothing about his life before Christ, except for one or two little things. One little thing is very important, he tells us, he tells us that Cyprian sold his garden and gave the proceeds to the poor in the church. And that little line tells you he is among the top 
of the, arist the wealthy in the Roman world. Uh, because only about 2% of people in the Roman world had gardens. So the very fact he had a garden and sold it speaks wealth. And the text we're going to read in a minute also bespeaks wealth. So Cyprian, uh, we would know nothing about his background uh, if it hadn't been for the text we're about to read, which he wrote probably about two years after his conversion to a deacon in the church in Carthage, Maybe this man, this often happens in the history of the church. Uh, somebody gets converted and somebody says to them, would you please tell me how it happened? And so this, this man, Donatus, has probably uh, related the story to him or asked him and then Cyprian wrote this account. So I'm going to read chapter 3 there and um, then I'm going to go back line by line and show you what kind of world he came from. While I was lying in darkness a stranger to the truth and the light, I thought it indeed difficult and hard to believe, according to the character of mine at the time, that divine mercy was promised for my salvation, so anyone might be born again and quickened unto a new life by the laver of the saving water. I'll come back to that phrase uh, a bit later. He might put off what he had been before, and although the structure of the body remained, he might change himself in soul and mind. How, I said, is such a conversion possible that the innate, which has grown hard in the corruption of natural material, or when acquired has become inveterate by the affliction of old age, should suddenly and swiftly be put aside. These things deep and profound have been thoroughly rooted within us. And his, quite, his statement here is very similar to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, uh, Jesus says to him, uh, you must be born again. Well, how, how can a man, you know, after a lifetime of, of living... Uh, really in alienation from God, re-enter his mother's womb. Well, uh, you must experience the new birth. And he, he's recalling here how he comes across the gospel. Probably somebody shared it with him. But his first reaction is, this is just not possible. Um, he, he's a man in his 40s. And as you get older, and I'm sure you all see this, you, you get fixed in your ways. So um, for whatever reason, I, I love peanut butter. And uh, my breakfast normally is a peanut butter and banana sandwich. Sometimes I don't have peanut butter and banana sandwiches, but I must have in a given year, like what, 365 days in a year, I must have at least 300 peanut butter and banana sandwiches. And sometimes later in the day, if I haven't had a peanut butter and banana sandwich, I'll have one as a snack later in the day. And it's weird, you, you, you know, there's other, I'm sure some of you don't like peanut butter. But things get, that's a little thing. It becomes part of your character. Uh, I was raised in England, so cups of tea, uh, all kinds of cups of tea. I must have a six to eight cups of tea a day. Uh, you're no sooner gone through a, uh, uh, one of those uh, flasks of tea than you put the water on again uh, for another uh, cup of tea. And we all have that, right? We have patterns of life. And with many things like, you know, Peanut butter and banana sandwiches, uh, I, they're good for you, I think, right? You get protein from peanuts, and you got, you got uh, starch, and you've got uh, fruit. So I can justify uh, having them. Um, but there's many things in our lives before we're converted that are not good for us. And we, we get into these patterns, and you'll notice that when people are converted, yes, they can be converted older in life, 
But the majority of people are converted younger, before they've learned patterns of behavior, and they just don't want to give these up. And so he, he, he is, the gospel is shared with him, and he, how can I change? What kind of things were part of his life? Well, please note now what he, what he says. These things, deep and profound, have been thoroughly rooted within us. When does he learn thrift, who has become accustomed to lavish banquets and extravagant feasts? When does he who conspicuous in costly raiment has shone in gold and purple dispose himself to ordinary and simple clothing? He who has been delighted by the fosses and public honors cannot become a private and inglorious citizen. He who has been attended by crowds of clients or has been honored by a crowded assemblage of an officious throng thinks it a punishment to be alone. Of necessity, as in the past, wine-bibbing ever entices us, entices with its tenacious allurements, pride puffs up, anger inflames, covetousness disturbs, cruelty stimulates, ambition delights, lust plunges into ruin. This I often said to myself. So he's not just giving a catalog here of sins that he did. Oh yeah, these are the sins of my countrymen. No, these are his sins. And they, they have a, they have a com, there is a commonality here. They all bespeak wealth. They speak, they're, they're the sins of the aristocracy. They're the sins of the upper class. And uh, let me go through them. So, thrift. Uh, a man who's been accustomed to lavish banquets and extravagant feasts. Um, I think there is a bit of an urban myth about the way the Romans used to gorge themselves. Uh, and I, there is this, this idea that I've heard people mention. Oh yeah, every, Roman, every wealthy Roman house had a place called the vomitorium, where you'd gorge yourself on food and then go vomit it all up so you could go back and gorge yourself. I've never come across any text in the Roman world that ever talks about that. But there is lavish money spent on food, it, all kinds of lavish, uh, 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 lavishness, uh, rare animals, uh, peacocks and pheasants being brought in uh, from various parts of the Roman world to, for your taste buds, um, uh, and various other types of delicacies, of which we, we actually we have um, uh, recipes for these various things. And I think I might have mentioned uh, a number of years ago, I used to do this, uh, this uh, uh, history uh, camp for my kids in the summer. I wasn't happy with the history they were getting in the school. And one year we did Roman history and <laughs> Allison's at work. So uh, we were going to have a meal made by dad and uh, it didn't turn out well. And uh, anyway, um, so we, we have recipes and we, we have some ideas how the upper class uh, would spend enormous amounts of money on food. And, um, you, you, you know, you, I, I, you sometimes go to restaurants and uh, th there's a limit, right? There's a limit. To, uh, you know, I, I, if I want to do something special, I'll go to Spencer's on the waterfront over in Burlington. And a meal there is going to cost you for 220 with with a tip, maybe 130, 140. That's about any alcohol, uh, which I don't use. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, but that, that's almost at the top limit. Like, what can you do to food? <laughs> you know, uh, but there are places you're going to pay more than that. And um, this, is, this is that world. Now, he's converted. Or right, the gospel is a gospel that speaks of relative simplicity. 
And you just can't go out spending all kinds of money on whims, even if you've got it. Uh, there are people in this world who have enormous amounts of money and it never enters their minds about whether it's right or wrong to spend this much money on that or whatever. Uh, I see it with cars. I'm, I'm not into cars. Uh, but, you know, m my wife knows all about cars. I'm not sure why she knows all about cars. And she'd say, that's that. And she said, that, that's about 90000 And it always amazes me. Like, why would you spend $90,000 on a car? Uh, unless, you can pro unless they can promise me it's going to last 30 years, then maybe. But uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. I, I, please do not take offense if you've got a $90,000 car. <laughs> um, I'm just, people who are wealthy, really wealthy, they can indulge that and they never, they never give a thought to it. Um, I'm touching on something, by the way, yeah, the use of money. We rarely talk about the use of money in the church. Uh, the big sins for us are all sexual, right? But uh, I remember a number of years ago, I did a study of the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And I put down in one column everything that Jesus said about sex and everything that he said about money. And money was five times more than sex. And the way we spend our money sometimes can tell us where our hearts are. Um, so, lavish spending on food. When does he who conspicuous in costly raiment is shone in gold and purple dispose himself to ordinary and simple clothing? That immediately tells you this man is wealthy because he could wear purple. Only the senators and the senatorial class and what is known as the equestrian class 2% of Roman society could wear purple. And it will usually, he's thinking about a man who would, on his toga, pure white toga, on the edge of the toga, you would have a broad purple stripe if you came from the senatorial class. This is the, the kind of ideal. And then a, a narrower purple stripe if you came from the class below them called the equestrian class or the class of knights. So as soon as you walked out, as soon as a man walked out in the, in, in the world, people know, knew a man of wealth and substance, etc. Because they could see the purple stripe on his toga. And um, again, it, this, this, is, this is to some degree our world too, right? Um, uh, most of us don't know anything about these things. Uh, I learned some of this. When my daughter uh, became a, uh, turned 16... Uh, I remember uh, I asked her, I said, where would you like to go for, for, what would you like to do for your 16th birthday? And I had been teaching in New York a number of times, and so she said, I'd love to go to Manhattan. So fine, we, we did go to Manhattan. First place she hit was uh, Fifth Avenue. I, I had no idea what she had intended. She was heading for a Louis Vuitton store. I, had no, I don't think I'd ever heard of Louis Vuitton. I had no idea. I knew there was something awry when there were guards at the door. <laughs> And um, needless to say, she couldn't buy anything in the store. It's too expensive. But I learned the, the brand name, uh, the brand, the logo of that. And there are knockoffs you could buy, but there are people who could have that little uh, handbag, so that brand on it, you know, handbags that are costing you five, ten thousand dollars $10,000. And uh, there are people in our world who dress like that, right? Enormous amount of money on their person. 
And that's him. That was him. But being a Christian changes your values. Um, he who has been delighted by the Fosses and public honors cannot become a private and glorious citizen. Anybody know what Fosses are? F-A-S-C-E-S. Anybody ever heard the word? It's the word we get fascism from. It's a bundle of rods, but very good. It's a bundle of rods with an axe in the middle. And uh, fascism, when uh, fascism is an Italian uh, word that was invented when Mussolini took over Italy, he went back to Roman symbols to, to celebrate his regime and to characterize his regime. And one of them is on a number of Roman buildings, you'll see these, uh, it's a bundle of rods about the size of your uh, wrist. And you'd have a half a dozen or more of them bound together with a leather strap at the bottom and a leather strap at the top, and in the middle, an axe. And what that uh, indicated was uh, the bundle of rods was corporal punishment, and the axe was capital punishment. And whenever a judge or a magistrate would go to work, he would have two men carrying these in front of him and two men behind. So you'd see him on the street, you knew immediately here was a man of importance. And uh, the Romans, like most cultures, are into ceremony and show and ritual. And uh, it would give you a feeling of, yeah, I'm somebody. Look at me. It's a scary looking thing. Yeah, it's a very scary looking thing. Yeah. Walking down the street. Yeah, the, uh, you would have two guys in front of you walking in and then two guys behind, which indicated that you had the power of corporal punishment, the beating of a person, if it was a crime that was not worthy of death, and then capital punishment, if it's a crime worthy this of death. Tool, if uh, yeah. Whoa. So what he's saying is, uh, you know, this is what he, this is what he was a judge. He was a magistrate. And uh, how do you suddenly give all that up? Um, it's it's a it's a challenge for us in in various walks of life. Um, I particularly, when I was much younger, I saw it in pastors in the sense of how does a pastor transition from being a pastor into quote-unquote retirement? You know, from being the center of the church's life in some ways, and you, I hope you understand the way I'm using that, and then suddenly now he's just a person in the pew. And I could see some men as they got older struggled with that. And I remember watching, seeing it as a young man and thinking, oh, well, you know, don't they realize they, they've got to step down at some point? Um, there was a dear brother who was, I, I need to be careful here, he was a very godly pastor, but he hung on till he was about 85 in a, in a church in Hamilton. And I remember it being invited by his assistant to speak in the church. I was 28. And there were like 10 people in the church. It's a Fellowship Baptist church. I you, if any of you, you might be able to figure out which one. And um, his assistant was like 82. <laughs> and I could tell the, 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 both of these guys want to die with their boots on. But they killed the church. They, they, they couldn't relate to anybody under 60, you know. And the church was dying. And, and I'm not, it's still there. I'm not sure... You know, I, have, I haven't thought about the church probably for a long time. It's still, it's still in Hamilton. Um, 
uh, anyway, <laughs> it's, it's a danger. And I, I, again, I saw older men in the fellowship. Um, I can think of probably three or four men immediately who built churches, got them up to, you know, five, six hundred, and then stayed right to the end and split the church. Because they, their identity was bound up with people, you know, coming to them, them helping people. It's all good, but it's a problem. And how do you, if, you, if, you're, if you're being a celebrity, quote unquote, how do, you, how do you give that up? And I'm now at that age and I'm having to think that through. And uh, how, do you, how do you step back from certain things, etc.? And my, my, my. Some pastors feel necessary to move on. Sorry? Some pastors feel that they need to move. They have to actually leave the church because if there's no, no easy way. Yes, to yes. Yeah, I mean, one of, one of the great pastors here uh, 40 years ago was Sinclair Robinson, if some of you remember him, at Elliott Heights. He was a tremendous pastor, really eccentric. I remember he had been a Pentecostal in his early years, and he was very eccentric in his preaching. And he retired. He was about 75 when he retired, and he stayed in the church. And most of the congregation thought of him as their pastor. And one of my students went there, and he was gone within five years because the people still went to Sinclair Robinson. And Sinclair should have left the church because it, it's, a, it's a challenge. And Cyprian's re- re- reflecting on that. Uh, he was a celebrated individual in his own culture, and suddenly now he's going to become a Christian, and he'll be a nobody. How, how, how do you do that? Or... He who has been honored by crowds of clients or has been honored by a crowded assemblage of an officious throng thinks it's a punishment to be alone. So what he's reflecting on here is one of the most important things to understand about Roman culture. Roman culture is based around a relationship called patron and clients. And I think I talked about this before. If you, you cannot understand the Roman world if you don't understand this relationship. There are, for most men and women in the Roman world, you needed a patron. There's no healthcare system. There's no uh, pension. You need a patron to help you uh, if you're sick. You need a patron to help you because he'd have a doctor living in his household. You need a patron to help you if you want to start a business. He'd loan you money. And patrons need clients because, let's say, I've got uh, ditches in my back. I need to dig some new irrigation ditches in my house so I can bring in more hot water, which the Romans did, amazingly, uh, then I need people to do that, et cetera, et cetera. And so there was this system where every morning a patron would receive all of his clients. He actually had a part of the room where he'd have a couch where he'd lie, and the clients, he'd recline on the couch, and the clients would come in, Wale, hello, Uh, how are you, how's the family? And then you go and stand in the courtyard. And there might be 50 to 80, 100 of you. And the patron might want to go downtown to Carthage. I say it's Carthage. Cyprian's the patron. He wants to go downtown Carthage. And he wants to look important. So 40 of you are going to walk behind him while he goes downtown Carthage, does whatever his business is. What are you going to do? You're just going to hang around the forum. Um, well, yeah, it's kind of like that. It, it's... it's um, 
If you ever go downtown Hamilton, you'll see this in Hamilton. If you ever go downtown Jackson Square, I used to go to Jackson Square all the time because my wife was working at the General, and she'd take a bus to Jackson Square, and then we, you'd have to change to go into Westdale. And I'd meet her in Jackson Square, and we'd have uh, 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 dinner. This is going back about 30 years. And often you'd have all these groups of Portuguese and Italian men. No women, not a woman in sight. And it's, it's, like, the old, it's like the old forum. It's like 2,000 years ago. This is the way these men in this society, they'd, all, they'd gather in the late part of the day to talk. And maybe, you know, they'd gone with their patron. And they got to hang around the forum. And uh, for many days, obviously, there'll be times when, no, I don't need you. And you can do your own whatever you had planned for that day. So how do you give all that up? When he becomes a Christian, most of his clients are going to abandon him. They don't want to be associated with such a person. And uh, then he lists a variety of things, uh, pride, anger, covetousness, cruelty. Cruelty watching the gladiatorial games. He mentions this at length. Ambition, uh, lust. This I often said to myself, for as I myself was enlivened by the very many errors on my previous life, of which I believed that I could not divest myself, so I was disposed to give in to my clinging vices, and in my despair of better things, I indulge my sins as if now proper and belonging to me. In that one sentence, he goes through three, three stages. The first stage is he hears the gospel, and he suddenly realizes, I'm a sinner. Things that were cultural, he now realizes are sin. He tries, second stage, he tries to change his life. I'm going to reform my life. I'm going to get rid of these things. And he can't. Third stage, he plunges back into that world with now a passion, but a guilty, guilty conscience. So he's awakened to sin. He's not converted at this point. Please note that. And uh, you, have, you have examples of awakening without conversion in the scriptures. Um, in Acts chapter 7, the men who stoned Stephen, they were awakened. They became angry. They were cut to the heart, it says. It's the same idea as in found in Acts 2, but in Acts 2, the awakening leads to conversion. What shall we do to be saved? In Acts 7, they kill the messenger. Here, he's realized his sin. He tries to block it out. He tries to change his life, reform his life. He can't change his life. He plunges back into the world of sin. And then he doesn't tell us how, but he's converted. But afterwards, that little but is a fabulous word. But afterwards, when the stain of my past life had been washed away by the aid of the water of regeneration. I'll come back to that like the other one, the laver of the saving water in a minute. A light from above poured itself upon my chastened <clears throat> and pure heart. Afterwards, when I drunk of the Spirit from heaven, a second birth restored me in a new, into a new man. Immediately, in a marvelous manner, doubtful matters clarified themselves. The closed opened, the shadowy shone with light. What seemed impossible was able to be accomplished, so it was possible to acknowledge that what formerly was born of the flesh and lived submissive to sins was earthly, and what the Holy Spirit already was animating began to be of God. Surely you know and recognize alike with myself what was taken from us, and was contributed by the death of sins and by that life of virtues. You yourself know, I do not proclaim it. 
Boasting to one's own praise is odious, although that cannot be a matter of boasting, but an expression of gratitude, which is not ascribed to the virtue of man, but is proclaimed as of God's munificence, that is his goodness, so that now not to sin begins to be a faith. And what was done in sin before to be of human error, our power is of God. I say all of it is of God. From him we have life. From him we have prosperity. That's a tremendous passage in which he clearly indicates that God saved him. It was God who changed him. He couldn't reform himself. God broke into his life. That little word, but, indicates this is the way I was going. I plunged back into my sins. I tried to stop my conscience, tried to pretend they weren't sin, but God broke into his life and changed him. And he goes here to the heart of what has always been the essence of conversion. That God breaks, there is a God. He is alive and he breaks into the lives of men and women and turns their lives around. It's absolutely tremendous. I mean, he, I'm sure he could have given us a lot more detail. But all of us who know this can fill out just the wonder of it. There was a moment when we were dead in sin and then there's a moment when we're now alive to God. And um, <clears throat> he looks at it from a number of angles. He looks at it from the idea of a second birth. He looks at it from the idea of uh, uh, drinking of the Spirit. Um, he talks about the closed opened, and uh, it's not clear what he's talking about here. Maybe he's thinking about scriptures that were closed to me. Suddenly now make sense. Um, the shadowy shone with light. The idea of light is a big image that is used in the Bible. It's used here all the time. Um, the reason by reason being, I think I may have mentioned this or earlier in, in some context, is we, we, we live with a constant possibility of light 24-7, right? That's not their world. If you don't light candles, you've got darkness at night. And some nights it will be very dark if it's a cloud, cloudy night with uh, no, star, no moon out, etc. And so the imagery of light, uh, the, the, the new birth being a, a flooding of light, uh, but let me go back to the water. In the earlier passage, uh, the first paragraph, he says, um, being quickened in a new life by the laver of the saving water. And then in this passage, he talks about the water of regeneration. He's talking about baptism. And immediately you might be thinking, oh, there's a problem here. And there is a problem if, uh, in terms of the language, but... I don't think the problem is theologically in Cyprian. Um, let me explain. So, in the early church, there are three parts of conversion. Uh, first of all, there is the step of faith. We must believe. And God doesn't believe for us. Right? We must believe. You take a step of faith. You have a duty to believe. Uh, you can't hand that responsibility off to another. Uh, nobody will ever stand before God who has not believed and say, look, if only you'd given me faith, I would have believed. But you didn't give me faith. It's not my problem. It's your problem. It's not, your, it's not God's problem. Men and women will be held responsible to put their faith in Christ. But none of us can do that of our own accord. So you need, we need the Spirit, which he emphasizes. So in conversion, there is the step of faith, and there is the gift of the Spirit. One of them speaks of divine sovereignty, and the other speaks of human responsibility, and woe betide the man who tries to resolve that completely. Woe betide the man or woman who tries to resolve that completely 
and satisfy every, every question of human reason. Like, how is it that my salvation is totally of God, but if I don't believe, he holds me responsible? It's a paradox. We wrestle with that paradox big time. Even though we accept the paradox, Jesus is fully God, fully man, right? No problem there. Uh, there are three in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are three persons, yet one God. No problem there. Your salvation is, you have to take a step of faith. You have a duty to respond to the gospel. But if you do respond to the gospel, it's all of God. And suddenly we, we bulk at that. Um, but there's a third thing in conversion, and that's baptism. In the early church, believer's baptism was the way in which I declared that I have been born again. I declared my faith. And the three go together. They're a package. And uh, can you be saved without baptism? Of course you can. The thief on the cross. But is that the norm in the early church? No. The norm in the early church is you are baptized as a believer. And um, notice when Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 6, he's never been to Rome, never been to Rome. And uh, he assumes that he can uh, urge them to walk in a holy manner because they have been buried with Christ in baptism. He assumes anybody who has named the Lord Jesus Christ has been baptized as a believer. And in fact, this is the norm up until the 5th century, up until Augustine, really. And so what you've got then is a package. What saves you? Well, the Holy Spirit saves me by giving me faith. What saves me? You must believe. Baptism in, in itself, by itself, and Cyprian says this elsewhere, doesn't save you. But it's part of the package of salvation. By itself, it's nothing. But it's, it's the way I declare that I'm in Christ. And uh, there, we have baptistries from Carthage. Uh, they're what we would describe today as immersion tanks. They're, they have steps down into them. And people, you would be immersed. And he would have been immersed. And it would have been what we call trine immersion. Uh, we don't do this. But the, he, would be, he would be asked the question, Do you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible? Yes, I do. And he'd be plunged under the water. Uh, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, uh, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, who for us men and for our salvation became man, suffered, crucified under Pontius Pilate, was raised from the dead on the third day, and will come again to judge the living and the dead? Yes, I do. And he plunged under water. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, uh, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who together with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified? Uh, do you believe in the, the forgiveness of sins, the life to come, the resurrection of the body, and the holy Catholic, one holy Catholic apostolic church. Yes, I do. And he plunged into the water. And um, I don't think trying immersion is required, but it, it, it typifies for us the Trinitarian nature of our faith. I've only ever seen it once. I was in, a, I was in John Stott's church in London about five years ago, and two Chinese Christian sisters were being baptized, and they went through those, those three questions. I was absolutely amazed. And I think the questions are great. I, the, the creed, as we have it, uh, that's, it's a baptismal. It originally started as a baptismal 
Creed. We talked about this with Irenaeus, if you remember. And with Irenaeus, Irenaeus uses it as a safeguard against heresy. But it begins in the context of baptism. Now, the way we have moved is we actually have people give their testimony of salvation, which I think is great, too. But uh, baptism, then, so what, what baptism stands for is salvation. And I think unwisely he uses the language of baptism because a later generation will then look back and say, aha, baptism saves. And once you move out of the Roman world uh, into the world of the Middle Ages, around the five, six hundreds, where there's biblical literacy, and you start to move towards uh, um, infant baptism, and infant baptism, uh, the reformers will recover the idea that infant baptism is a sign, it doesn't save, but in the Middle Ages, people will look back, Cyprian said, aha, Cyprian said, the water is saving. And so if you're baptized as an infant, you're saved. And everybody in the Middle Ages in Europe who's baptized is a Christian. And they're all going to heaven eventually. And in the medieval thinking, this is a whole different story. It's got nothing to do with Cyprian. You get the development of a third place you go before you get to heaven. Everybody who's been baptized as a Christian goes to purgatory. Unless you're really holy, you get, you get to bypass purgatory and go straight to, to heaven. You know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Monopoly. You get to bypass, go, and whatever. And uh, that, there's, a, there's a real problem there. Obviously, a deep problem. But what happens after Cyprian's time with Augustine, Augustine's wrestling with, and I'm going a bit beyond my mandate here of, Augustine, of Cyprian, because Augustine is, is early 5th century. Uh, Augustine's wrestling with what happens to little children who die as infants, because Augustine believes that we're all born with a bent, crooked, fallen nature that'll damn your soul. And so Augustine argues that if you baptize the baby, the baptism cleanses the child of original sin. The child still needs to get converted later in life. But what he's done is he's separated, he separated the experience of conversion from baptism. So you've got this initial baptism that cleanses you of original sin, and then later you have to get converted and confess the faith. And uh, we've inherited that as Baptists. And so I'm now going to make a step, which you may want to push back on me, which is this, is that for, for, for our world, our Baptist world, we, we, we're, we're calm and, and cool about the idea that... Uh, We'll let that go. Uh, we're calm and cool about the idea that, hey, you can be saved, but you don't have to get baptized. But that's not the pattern in the early church. The pattern in the early church is all who have put their faith in Christ are baptized as believers. And so we have in our churches people who are genuinely born again, but they've not been baptized. And we're okay with that. But... I think that's problematic, and um, and I think we've inherited the we've inherited what Augustine did when he separated baptism from conversion and confession. And uh, the Roman Catholics have developed it so that you get. I was I was I went through the the christening when I was a little baby, 
And uh, from Roman Catholic point of view, I'm, I'm saved. In the sense that I'll eventually go to purgatory. But man, you wouldn't have known that when I was, when I was a teenager. And uh, I was a Marxist. And uh, no, God had to save me. And that, whatever happened as a little baby, did not save my soul. And I needed to be, I needed to be converted. And then upon conversion, I was baptized as a believer. Um, but we've separated, we've inherited that separation. So we have people who are converted, genuinely converted, who love the Lord, who are walking in faith with him. But they have not declared that faith publicly in the waters of baptism. And we've inherited that to some degree from Augustine. And Augustine, for Augustine, the question was, what to do with little babies who die in infancy? It's, it's, a, it's a question of, of uh, pastoral, pastoral help to parents. And I'm sure some of you may have had uh, miscarriages and um, etc. And where are those little ones? And uh, if they're saved, how are they saved? Now, my, wife, my wife and I, we had two miscarriages. And I believe those children, I, I thought of this the other day, those, those, they, they were children. My wife and one was five months along. And there was a child there. And that child is with the Lord. I believe that. But why do I believe that? Well, I'm basing it on a variety of texts. I don't have it explicitly. Uh, but I, I could argue it. But again, it's a pastoral issue. And Augustine sought to deal with that pastoral issue by baptizing little babies, cleansing you from original sin, so they all went to heaven. Um, Cyprian doesn't know any of that. Now for Cyprian, baptism is part of the package of conversion. And, uh, but what this text celebrates is that God saved sinners. And God saved this man. And within two years of his conversion, he was elected bishop. And there was a lot of there was a lot of dissent at the time when the congregations all voted. The majority of them voted for him to be bishop. But there were those who said he's too young. He's only been a believer two years. But he's a man in his 40s. He's got a lot of practical experience. He's a very gifted speaker. Um, if you could read the Latin, you'd see that. The Latin is really good Latin. And uh, he was the right choice for the church, as we will see uh, next week. Um, he is a man who believes uh, that at the heart of the unity of the church are the bishops, the leaders that God establishes. And you need to be in communion with those bishops uh, to be part of the church. That will come next week. And in that, he actually lays a foundation, an element of foundation for what will be the, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, but there are areas where he strongly disagrees with what becomes the Roman Catholic Church. For instance, he will have a quarrel with the Bishop of Rome, Stephen. And uh, I will talk to you this next week too. And the quarrel will be so intense that he'll become convinced that Stephen's the Antichrist. And he'll actually tell him. He'll, tell, he'll actually say to him, the reason why you can't see things my way is I've concluded you're the Antichrist. Uh, Stephen had already figured out uh, Cyprian was the Antichrist. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a very, it's funny, but it's sad. And both men will be martyred. And I like to think of them both arriving in glory. You're here? <laughs> and, uh, oh, they're washing away of some of our silliness, eh? Okay, let's stop here. Uh, ask if there are any questions. 
And uh, I, I, I find Cyprian a, a very intriguing figure. Uh, and as you'll see next week, I, I think a very helpful figure uh, because of the wisdom he had in leading the church through a very, very difficult time when she was split uh, in two or three ways. And we'll see how Cyprian is able to guide the church through a, a very difficult time of persecution. And by the way, next week, I, it has, I think, a lot of uh, wisdom for our own day. And th that's, I think, one of the things that really helps me appreciate Cyprian. Uh, even though there's areas where I disagree with him. I, I don't think his use of the language here of the water of saving, the water of saving, the water, the, the lava of the saving water is helpful, uh, especially in the light of its history. But anyway, any questions before we conclude for, for tonight? Yes. So um, all Armenian names end in I-A-M. I, I think I'm more or less correct in saying that. Most I would think, yeah, yeah. So is he is he Armenian? To me last week, oh, Tertullian and Cyprian. We got two names there that end in I A N. Now is that because these people are have a Semitic? No, no, probably not. Origin? No, because his real name is Tertullianus. Oh, okay. Right, and we've anglicized it, <laughs> and so this is Kip Kiprianus. Okay. Uh, his first name is Taskius. Taskius Kipriar Kiprianus. Okay, so it has nothing to do with... No, no, no. Okay. What we've done in English is every, every Latin name... Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, every Latin name ends... They're, they're, the, the, the names of people are inflected. They have endings. Yes. So my wife and I... My wife got interested in Icelandic. <laughs> Murder mysteries. So you're listening to the Icelandic and you're reading the subtitles. Well, I started listening. I, I sat through and watched about half a dozen of these. And she said to me, she said, if you listen to their names, they're always different. Well, I suddenly realized it's very old. It's an old language because they're inflecting the names. So Kiprianus, Kipriani, Kiprianus, if it's the subject of the sentence, Kipriani, if it's the indirect object, Kipriana, if you're speaking to them directly. So the name is changing. So it's it's yeah. So we've 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 dropped off the ending because we don't do that. What we do is we put a little particle or preposition to Cyprian uh, or in uh, or on Cyprian or whatever. Okay. So yeah. So yeah. I was just yeah. So it's Cyprianus Tertullianus. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Any other questions before we conclude for tonight? Okay. So we have two more weeks. Um, Lord willing. Next week, we'll look at Cyprian and what's called the Decian Controversy. And then the following week, I'm going to go back about 60 years. I'm going to do, go to a man named Melito Sardis, very um, uh, pretty unknown figure. And we have a sermon he preached for Easter on the death of Christ. And it's appropriate. It's a few days before Good Friday. It's a day before Good Friday. It's Monday, Thursday. And so it'll be, a, it'll be a, hopefully a a meditative experience of thinking about our Lord's death uh, for us. So let's, uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for this time together. Uh, we thank you for the life of this dear brother. And we thank you that you saved sinners. You saved us. And that by grace and by mercy. And we do pray that we would walk in a way that honors you and is in accord with what you have done for us. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.